what I want to do is I want to talk about the three theories of truth that are present with us today in our modern day, our postmodern era. And I want to show you, the case that I'm going to be building now is that we can know truth. Okay? I'm going to be answering the question, can we know anything at all? All right? So let me show you the three theories of truth that are now with us. And the first one is what's called the correspondence theory of truth. Now, this is a theory of truth that I believe undergirds the Bible. This is what I believe undergirds all of life. I think the majority of all people, in fact, all people use this version of truth, whether they can put it in these terms or not. Okay? Um, so, you know, re- let me just read the, the description of it, and then I'll give you an example. The correspondence theory of truth is where a belief, thought, or statement or representation is true if it corresponds to reality. All right? So let's say I claim that in my wallet there's $5. If I take my wallet out and you dig through it and you find $5, that corresponded to reality, right? It's a true statement. Okay? Very simple. Everybody lives this way. All right? In fact, if you didn't live with this theory of truth, you'd be ripped off all the time. Right? So we all have to use this theory of truth. This is what the church has been founded on. This is what the Bible uses as truth. But what I'm going to show you is the result of Immanuel Kant. There's two other theories This one is out of, really it's not used much anymore, but it's called the pragmatic theory of truth. There's still some who hold to it. It was made popular by John Dewey. Does anybody know who John Dewey is? He died in 1952. He's the one who brought about the Dewey Decimal System, right? If you like that uh, type of system, he's the one who did that. But he said, a belief, thought, statement, or representation is true if it is useful. All right? Now, again, notice he's not talking about whether it corresponds to reality because uh, according to Immanuel Kant, we don't have access to reality anyway. Now, the other view that is the predominant view of the postmoderns today is called the coherence theory of truth. And simply stated, it is a belief, thought, statement, or representation is true if it coheres to an internal established set of beliefs. Now, in the next slide, I'm going to show you a picture that I think helps describe what coherentism is, okay, because it's a mouthful. But what it is, it's a web of beliefs that a person has that isn't necessarily connected in any way to reality. Why? Because according to Immanuel Kant, we don't have access to reality. Do you see what I'm saying? So the correspondence theory of truth is what the postmoderns use as their version of truth, their theory. Postmodernism is predicated on the coherence theory of truth. Notice again that reality is thought not to be attainable. Okay, so the only version of the theory of truth that has it is the correspondence theory, right? All right, now, let me try to explain the irreconcilable problem with postmodernism. Postmodernism asserts either that there is no truth, which is an absurdity, we'll talk about that in a minute, or that truth exists because we don't have access to it. So there's two types of postmoderns. The first type of postmodern says truth doesn't exist. The second type says, yeah, truth exists out there, but we don't have access to it. All right, so think about when you're talking about postmoderns, two types. One says there's no truth. One says, yeah, there's truth, but we don't have access to it. So all intents and purposes, they don't have truth either. All right? Now let me show you what coherentism looks like. What I'm going to show you is I want you to think of this oval, this bubble, as representing all of reality. Everything that's a true idea, thought, anything that's true would be in this bubble. All right? Now I'm going to show you the bubble of a postmodern's mind. Okay? And what I want you to see at the outset is that it doesn't touch with reality. All right? This is a person who holds to coherentism. And in fact, within this person's mind, he has thousands or she has thousands of ideas. And I'm just going to list three of them. Three of the ideas that this person who's a coherentist has 
and this person is an atheist, by the way, they believe there is no God, there is no hell, and sex outside of marriage is fine. Okay, it's no moral problem at all. It's, it's fa- in fact, it's moral. That's what they believe. Okay. Now, in reality, we know that God exists, that there is a hell, and their sex only in the confines of marriage is morally okay before our God. Okay, that's reality. Now, notice this is the coherentist understanding of knowledge. As long as all of the ideas within this person's mind uh, validate or affirm these three ideas, these are valid ideas. And in no way does this bubble or these ideas have to be connected to reality because Immanuel Kant said we don't have access to reality. There is a radical disjunction between reality and their view. Does that make sense? So they're living, in a sense, in their own world. And guys, let's face it, how many times do you read the newspapers and watch the news and say, are people crazy? Are they living? You know, we have people that say, well, we can't hurt the terrorists but we can abort children? It's topsy-turvy. It doesn't seem like they're connected to reality. People uh, hate Christians and abuse Christians, and then they make a spot for the Muslims who are the murderers around the world. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's it's topsy-turvy, everything. I'm just coming up with examples off the top of my head. It's absurdity. And the reason why is many of their views, the postmodern generation, they're not connected to reality. They can hold to these views because it's their theory of truth. They don't worry about whether something is actually corresponds to reality. They're not even concerned about that. Okay? So we have to realize that uh, in order to, I think, witness to them. All right? Because we have to get them out of this coherentist understanding. So the good news, friends, is we can know truth. Okay? We can know it and we can prove it to them. This is how, by the way, this is the practical side, you guys. This is how I would argue with the postmodern. But realize at the outset, I want to say this. There's a difference between proof and persuasion. You and I are going to prove the postmodern wrong here, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be persuaded. Okay? Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made the increase. Right? It's God who ends up having to do the work on people's heart often. But you and I are going to be faithful to give the best arguments possible. So let's see how we can refute postmodernism and prove that we can know truth. This is what I would say. First of all, remember, two types of postmodernists. The first kind of postmodernist is the one who says there is no truth. It just simply doesn't exist. This is absurdity. Listen, the idea that there is no truth cannot be true because to affirm this idea is to assert a truth. It is true that there is no truth. What they are saying is it is true, A, that there is no truth, non-A, at the same time in the same relationship, aren't they? That's a violation of what? The law of non-contradiction. It's an absurdity. And what should happen is the logic policeman should stand up and say, you can't go there, right? It's irrational. Now, unfortunately, because of our public school systems, many people aren't taught logic, and they're not going to see that. So, again, you're proving your case, but don't be surprised if you're not persuading them, okay? But you've just proven that they're wrong. Now, the second type of postmodern is the one who says, like Immanuel Kant, yes, there's reality out there, but we don't have access to it. Or let me say it another way, there's truth out there, but we don't have access to it. This is how I would handle that. Again, Kant cannot be right because if he is right, namely that there is no reality, or we don't have access to reality, rather, then he has proven himself wrong. Because he's saying it is a fact of reality, again, that we don't have reality, or we don't have access to reality. He's saying it is a reality, A, that we don't have access to reality, non-A. And it's at the same time the same relationship. Okay? And so it's an absurdity. All right? 
Think about it this way. If his argument is right, he's proven himself wrong. That itself violates the law of non-contradiction to be right and non-right regarding an argument at the same time in the same relationship. So, friends, now we have just proven that these men cannot hold, or women, hold to postmodernism and be rational. Okay? In fact, we have concluded that postmodernism is rationally impossible. It's an impossibility. If someone's postmodern, they're irrational. Okay? And holding on to it is like believing in pixie dust or the tooth fairy. It's irrational. All right? Now, let me give you one other instance that I like to use. And you guys can use a different story. But I like to come up with a, an analogy to show people because one of the things that's attacked by the postmoderns is the basic reliability of sense perception. Why did Immanuel Kant say we don't have access to reality? Because our sense perceptions aren't perfect. All right? Now, let me tell you, I was an airline pilot for seven years. I was a flight instructor before that. And I often, and I have over 7,000 hours of flight time, and I oftentimes would fly at night and in bad weather, sometimes hundreds of miles. And I would have to find a little concrete patch, sometimes no more than 5,000 feet long. And after an hours and hours of flying in really bad weather, I would break out 100 feet above the ground, and there that runway would be. Now, what I throw out to the postmodern is, postmodernist is, is there any way that is in fact possible unless my sense perception is basically reliable. No. And you can count, come up with countless examples. Come up with your own in your own life. But that's the one I always use. Uh, Bob has a good one where he uses a postmodern doctor. And he's showing the absurdity. What we need to show people is yet the, the, the sense perceptions we have are reliable enough to know truth. In fact, the apostolic witness um, from our apostles, in fact, is built upon it. Listen to what John the Apostle says in First John First John 1 John 1.1, he says this. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So here John the Apostle is affirming that the way they knew truth, the way they knew the Messiah, is through their sense perceptions. Okay? Sense perceptions are reliable enough for us to know truth. Now, does that mean we can't be fooled? No, we can be fooled sometimes, but oftentimes we'll even know when we're fooled. Think about this. How many times I love to fish, and I'll lose my fishing lure, and I'll have a pole, and I want to get my fishing lure. And sometimes when you're looking in water, it distorts the distance. But all I do is, okay, so now my sense perception isn't quite up to snuff because I'm looking through a prism of water. But what I do is I take my pole, and I try to get my lure, and if it comes up without the lure, well, I know I didn't go far enough or I'm missing it, right? So I go back in and I try. I'm aware that my sense perception might be fooled because of the prism of water. But again, I'm aware of it, all right? So don't let the postmoderns get away with saying your sense perception isn't good enough. It is. We believe in the basic reliability of sense perception. The apostles did. We, friends, can know truth. And that is the good news. We can know truth and we must, all right? All right. Now, what's the real reason behind postmodernism? This is my last slide. The real reason, friends, behind postmodernism is that human beings want autonomy. Autonomy is a word, auto and namas, meaning self-lawgiver. The original promise of the serpent in the garden was that if you will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, knowing good from evil, right? And that is the first sin, isn't it? That we want to be self-lawgivers. And postmodernism is a mechanism by which people can say, I can't know the revelation of God anyway, so I'll be the captain of my own ship and I'll live any way I want. That's really what's behind postmodernism. Autonomy, self-lawgivers. That's what human beings 
want to be. But friends, our God is the God who declares what is right. He is a God that loves those who speak with truth and don't speak with a forked tongue. In fact, God says in Isaiah 45:19, he says, I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare what is right. And then he goes on in Proverbs 14:25. Listen to what he says. He says, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who utters lies is a betrayer. You see how the one who upholds truth is that whom God loves. And those who speak with a forked tongue are those who lead people to destruction and who displeases God. Let me show you a, a passage that I love out in John. John 17:17, 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now let me show you the word that's used in the New Testament, the term. Aletheia is the noun that's used for truth. And it literally means you can find this in a lexicon, a state of reality, the state of affairs that corresponds to reality. And we see, in fact, the same thing in the Old Testament. This is a meth. This is a th. So it's a meth. And again, this means the same thing as aletheia. It is the state of affairs that corresponds to reality. And it means that we can know the difference between true testimony and false testimony. Remember the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false testimony? Without truth, how could we determine between true and false testimony? You could say to the jury, well, in my own mind, I saw the guy shoot him. Well, they don't care if it's in your own mind. They want to know if he actually shot him, right? So we could bear false testimony all the time, right? And now I'll tell you a passage I actually have the privilege of teaching on next week to some teenagers in John 14, a passage that's very moving to me. In John 14, too, Jesus looks at his disciples. He's in the waning days of his public ministry, of his ministry on earth before he's crucified. And he looks at them, and it's a very personal thing. He looks at them all and he says, In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And he goes on to say, he says, If it were not so, I would have told you. That's very moving to me because what Jesus is saying is, If it were not true, that you're going to be with me. If it were in fact the case that when you die, you're going to be nothing but fodder in the ground and food for the worms, I being your God and your Savior, love you enough to tell you the truth. But he says it is so. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Right? But our God loves us enough to tell us the truth. His words correspond to truth. He does not speak with a forked tongue, and therefore we can trust him with every word he says. And to me, that's good news. And I tell you, the postmodern generation is hurting to know a God like that. Okay? So that's who we have to deliver to these postmoderns. And say, you want to live in the area of forked tongue uh, people and people that will tell you that's true for them and they'll abuse you? Let me tell you about my God who tells people the truth, so much so that he's made these fantastic promises. We can use that, friends. Our God is a God who loves truth. The real reason, friends, behind postmodernism, I think, is found in Romans 1.28. I actually took this passage. I think it's a little misleading in the NES version. I took it right out of the Greek because, uh, well, let me read it and I'll explain. Paul writes this in verse 28. He says, And just as they did not approve to have God in knowledge, God gave them over to a depraved mind. In the NES version, it will say, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. But epigenosis is literally a term that literally means to have God in knowledge. There's a, there's a dative here. So what's going on here is that humanity is being judged because they did not see fit, morally speaking, to have knowledge of God. In fact, they jettisoned it, is the idea. And because they didn't love to have knowledge of God, just as these postmoderns are doing today, God gave them over to what? A depraved mind. 
And that's who we're dealing with. And the reason why I say that is we can make all of the good arguments we can, and, and we must do that. But at the end of the day, we have to lift these people up in prayer because unless God regenerates the heart, they will not perceive and receive the gospel. Okay, but that does not excuse us from using the best arguments possible. So we're going to pray like mad for these people. okay? and we're going to use the best arguments possible and we're going to whip them with half our brains tied behind our back. Right. But all out of love, because we love these people to death and we don't want to see them go to perdition like they are by the thousands because they have rejected the notion that they can know God. Okay. that's all I've got. What I want to do now is I want Bob to come up and I want him to talk a little bit about Romanticism. Hegel, philosopher, who's notoriously difficult to understand, and but I was able to identify Hegel as the true founder of the emergent church. Yeah. Okay. And and here's why I'm saying that. Their theology comes from a guy by the name of Jürgen Moltmann, and Moltmann in 1965 wrote a book called The Theology of Hope, and he got inspired to write that book because he read a book by a Marxist okay, that based hope on the whole idea of the Hegelian synthesis that history was going somewhere better and sort of resurrecting Marxism. This was in the 50s. Okay. And so he decided to write a Christian version of that. And in the preface to the 1991 edition of his reissue of the book 25 years later, Moltmann said, that the Marxist view may just as well be right as my view. We cannot know that. (laughs) Yeah, we cannot know that, but we believe that history is going somewhere, and that's going toward God. Mm. And so in the end, whoever's view is correct will end up in the same place. Interesting. That that was Moltmann. That's in the first chapter uh, of my book. And then Hegel had an idea. Bernard Ram, a theologian, wrote a book where he described the ideas of Hegel as they touch religion. Okay. And Hegel believed that in the fall, man fell up, not down. The fall was a good thing. <laughs> and, and in his view, it's called a spiral view of history. History is like an upward spiral that's heading toward paradise or some better reality. And that all of the apparent contradictions... Uh, the thesis, the antithesis, will synthesize into a third option that's better than the other two that are being left behind. Now, wow. there's religious versions of Hegel's philosophy, and then there's the Marxist-atheist version of it. Sure. Okay? Both of those were on the table when this, uh, Jürgen Moltmann wrote his book. Now, what that has to do with Romanticism, we know the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, but Hegel scholars say that's oversimplification yeah. that was created later. Yeah, by Marx. To right. help people understand yeah. it. Right. But the basic idea is that, yeah, panentheistic, because God is in everything, and he's kind of pulling us along. He, it isn't yeah. saying God is everything. It says God is in everything. And the way they're describing it now in the emergent is that God is in the future. And if you heard me do the seminar on this, Tony Jones talks about the laser beam of redemption. Yeah, right. Okay. So God is the starship enterprise. <laughs> you and I and every all of the things in history are caught under the tractor beam, and God's pulling it towards himself in a saving way. Wow. That's the basic belief of the emergent church, and I proved it in a book that will be out in April. 
No, romanticism. I'm sorry, let me stop you right there. Let me just show a diagram of that real quick. I tried to put this on this slide, and if you guys put it in in the format where you have it uh, like a PowerPoint, let me show you what I think this looks like. Here, what Bob is talking about, here you have God, here you have man, and here you have creation. God is part of creation, or creation is in, in God. And so what he's talking about is that God is drawing these things to himself. And man is the go-between point between... So he, in other words, man has part of God in him and part of creation, and therefore that's why Jesus, they, they pervert the incarnation. But the whole point is creation and everything is being drawn towards God. Yeah. And therefore, why would he do any judgment? Because he's judging himself. You see, yeah. that's why they're rejecting There's judgment. no future judgment. Now, yeah. Ram said that Hegel proposed a spiritual evolution before Darwin ever proposed biological evolution. Oh, right, right. That's yeah, right. so the first one to propose evolution was Hegel in about 1805, mm. only it was a spiritual evolution. Spiritual wow. evolution. Wow. Now, romanticism was also a product of about that t- same time period, early 19th century. Okay. And what romanticism was, it's hard to pin it down because by nature it's sort of like this whole postmodern emergent thing. It's like the nailing the jello to the wall because <laughs> it doesn't have hard edges. Yeah. But romanticism was the idea that you didn't gain truth through these ways that would rationalism and empiricism and these guys are debating. Yeah. That, but that, that you had to bring into account feelings and experiences. Sure. Okay? And that truth could be experienced or felt in ways that aren't tied to rationality. Hmm. So, so, so it was a reaction against the against rationalism. Against rationalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and against the whole debate that was going on. Yeah, yeah. And so why can't we just imagine a beautiful, it's sort of like life is about smelling the roses. Sure. Okay, and if smelling the roses is a wonderful experience, why do I have to explain it? Why do I have to study roses and olfactory nerves? And, right, right, okay, right. You know, just go with just the feelings. Experience, experience it romantically. Yeah. And then there was an ide- German idealism that was also connected to that period. Yeah. Now, what happened, and Schaefer's writings were about this. When Schaefer wrote, he talked about the death of romanticism. And Schaefer was writing in the mid-20th century. And what had happened was romanticism hit the rocks in the 20th century because of First World War, Great Depression, Second World War, yeah. and... Uh, the idea that everything was getting better, that we could just idealize ourselves out of all the world's problems, was just destroyed by the cataclysmic events of the early 20th century. And so when Schaefer was writing, he said, if Christians start playing around, and I, this quote is, I quoted him on this, yeah. if, if Christians start playing around with the terminology of synthesis, Hegel, they will lose the opportunity that's been presented to us by the death of Romanticism. Mm -hmm. And what Schaefer meant by that was that rationalism had ultimately led to despair. Romanticism had died. The ship of Romanticism hit the rocks of world wars. Mm -hmm. And so you have a vacuum. And Schaefer and Labrie, what they did, what he did through his ministry, was to offer young intellectuals a Christian answers based on the Reformation view of Scripture. Wow. That, that we can know who God is, that God has spoken true truth, and that what we can know about God from the Bible is true, known God, to God to be true, known to us to be true, wow. mediated to us through the Scriptures, and that the truth applies both to our spiritual lives 
and the real world we live in. Wow, amen. And, and, and so that was uh, Schaefer. And I dedicated, in, in the preface of the book, I'm dedicating the, the book to the memory of Francis Schaefer yeah. and bemoaning the fact that his generation has passed from the scene of history and that the intellectuals in the Christian church today are going into post-modernity and yeah. they're giving up the fight. Yeah, isn't that sad? We it's have really a great sad. opportunity okay. to... So that's romanticism. Uh, thanks a and lot. Then that in is awesome. Immersion is just a resurrection of romanticism. Yep, yep. Okay. Things are getting better. We had a question. Uh, Mike, right? Are you saying that wars of uh, the 20th century were reality breaking into the coherentism of romanticism? Well, no, yeah. What I would say is just it devastated the idea that mankind is getting better that we are in this evolutionary path where things are getting better, man is progressing without God in a real sense, that we have this transcendent ability to pull ourselves out of the mire. That's devastated by the First and the Second World War. People realize, you know what, we're not getting any better. In fact, we may be getting worse. Well, then doesn't, uh, I mean, we look like we're going into an economic crisis here. Yeah. And we may be going into a... um, you know, the next few years into a situation that none of us have experienced before. Mm-hmm. And will that provide an opportunity to evangelize? You know, I, I hope Will it people does. be shaken out of their, uh, you know, their ability to cloud out reality? I, I hope you're right. And I tell you, um, an interesting point that Schaefer always makes, it's directly related to what you're saying, is people can't live out postmodernism, and oftentimes crises make that very clear because what the postmodern theologians in the emerging church today, what they're doing is they're taking their faith and they're saying, that's irrational, we can't know. Okay. Well, then on their day-to-day lives, they drive on the right side of the road, they stop at red lights and they go at green lights, they act like people that hold to the correspondence theory of truth, see? But what I'm hoping is that events like that, um, like this downturn in the economy or warfare, whatever God throws our way, it'll clarify and it makes people come to the... Because you can't live out... If you, when life, that's why as a pilot, life and death was at stake. I couldn't be a postmodernist. I didn't have that luxury. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. And what I'm hoping is that events like that are clarifying to people. Yeah. Just one other thing. Does, where does Charles Finney uh, fit into all this? Because he saw the bright future as the Marxists now see in the secular. They see the bright future. And uh, I'm wondering... You yeah. Know, now, a... to be honest, I don't know a lot about Finney other than his um, tremendous Arminianism that he espoused. Do you, do you have any well, thoughts on Finney? He, he denied the sin nature and believed in the ability of man to solve, to obey anything God ever said. Okay, so he would actually deny the sin nature of man, yeah. like original sin. Okay. Yeah, denied original sin and he believed in the perfectibility of human nature. Yeah. Now, uh, something you said, I, I think we should clarify. <laughs> Coherentism wasn't articulated as a, an option for epistemology until the 80s? Yeah, it's, that's recent. Yeah, yeah the 1980s. Yeah. I, mean, I studied it in the early 90s. Yeah. So you had the, all these other ideas, then you had the pragmatism. William James was another one besides yep. Dewey. Yeah. And then now coherentism. And co- but coherentism, as Eric very, I thought it was a great lecture, by the oh. way. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. I hope I, it was clear. I hope, um, I, you know, I really struggled. How do you explain coherentism? It's so absurd. Okay, I, uh, <laughs> I, I have a great illustration, yeah. but not enough people saw the movie. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. what is it? Uh, uh, Monsters, Inc. <laughs> Who's ever seen Monsters, Inc.? All right, okay. 
Now you know what coherentism is because it was a cartoon movie in a world that doesn't exist, but, they, but it coheres together so well, you want to believe it. Oh, yeah, and the, the, the animals scre- are fed? The, the screams of the little screams, that's kids right. and the monsters sneak into the kids' bedroom and scare them. And the louder they scream, it provides energy for the power plant for oh. the city. Okay? Now, that's the reality. Now, see, you can get yourself into a movie like Monsters, Inc., and get caught up into it, and your mind sort of suspends the correspondence theory. Yeah. And you're in that world, and you can enjoy it. Well, coherentism is saying any world that coheres like that is just as legitimate as any other one. They're living in Monsters, Inc. Yeah, they they could be. Maybe Monsters, Inc. is the real world. Now, another version of uh, trying to uh, show postmodern thinking is a movie called The Truman Show. And if you saw that, I see that one it's the idea, again, is this guy's in some unreal world that somebody else constructed for him. Okay. And so young postmodern thinkers feel like somebody out there, the church or some evil white European males are usually to blame for about everything. Sure. Okay. <laughs> That's the These thing, evil yeah. white European males yeah. constructed a reality and then stuck you in it and you need to break out of it. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that is that's so true. That is the politically correct group to hate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's right. So, well said. All right. Another comment on those lines. I was just thinking about all the kids that go to, uh, is it Paddington Station, looking for the platform of 12 and a half for Harry Potter because they've been in, so involved in the Harry Potter setup. It's the, exactly the same thing. Is it really? I'm not, I must be a real nerd. I don't know any of this. <laughs> Okay. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I'm not hip anymore, you guys. I need to get kids. <laughs> we got one on the way. Yeah, Patrick. Maybe uh, if I could back up to near the beginning when you talk about the kind of apologetics. Yeah. Uh, I just want to clarify something. You talk about presuppositional yeah. apologetics where we don't argue circ- in circular logic. We don't use oh. Christ to prove the Bible or the Bible to prove Christ unless yeah. we first prove one. The yeah. Bible. I'm sure you would agree and, and say that there's a difference between doing that and proclaiming the Word of God to unbelievers. Yeah. Without reference to trying to prove the Bible, if we're going to proclaim the Word of God to unbelievers in the hopes that they might be saved, yeah. that's definitely a good thing. Exactly. It's just not. It's it's not related to apologetics, really, or it, it's slightly You're right. related. You're right. And um, it's not by saying. Presuppositional apologetics aren't preferred. We're not saying we should avoid preaching the word to unbelievers. Well, yeah, good distinction. Um, here, here's how I say it. When I go out on the street, if I meet somebody, right away what I want to do is convict them under the law. I want to show them that, in fact, a holy God, uh, they are a sinner before a holy God, and they are in desperate need of a Savior. Okay, And, in fact, they'll go to hell because there's no way to be satisfied and have atonement other than through Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is convict them under the law so that they have the need for the atonement and the perfection of the Savior. However, what I typically see is when I'll throw that out there, people will say, well, I don't even believe in truth. Now what I do is I go, okay, rewind. i got to go start and prove a whole different set of propositions now. So now I look at my role is, again, God is going to be using my arguments. My privilege is when I get to get to the gospel. That's what I want to do. 
That's always my goal. But I, at the same token, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine and tell them all about Christ when, in fact, they won't even accept the fact that there is a God that they're sinning against. So many times, you guys, I'll be down at the University of Minnesota. I'll be uh, trying to you know, witness to people or people at the club, and I'll talk to them and I'll say, you know, in fact, you're a wretched sinner. And you know what the good news is? Um, or, you know, I'll tell them I'm a wretched sinner, too. You know, I try to get at least some rapport with them. But I'll tell them that they're a wretched sinner, and they say, well, you know what, there's no God that I'm sinning against. Okay? So an atheist, they don't even have the presupposition that there is a God they're sinning against. So what I try to do is get them to admit that at least um, rationally there has to be a God. Okay? Now, I know the scriptures are really declaring that it's really the heart that's the problem. They want to try to claim there's no God. But in other words, I think it's disingenuous for us to say, you know what, I really don't believe your argument. So what I do is I meet them where they're at, but again, the whole goal is to get to preach the word of God to them. That is the goal because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's what convicts them. Yeah. I think it was good that you gave us that circular reasoning thing because this is exactly the same uh, argument that they throw at us when we say, well, to evolutionists, well, you know, you look at the fossil record and then you look at the, the stratification record. And yeah, the, the, it's that, circular. Yeah, and it's a right. circular reasoning, and so it's they, good they to date, get away from that. <laughs> they date the strata by the fossils, yeah. and then they say, well, the fossils are this old because of the strata they're yeah. found in. It is. Yeah. It's completely circular. Yeah. They use the exact same arguments. Yep, very good. And that's an informal fallacy called begging the question. You're asserting the conclusion into the premise. We learned that next, last week, right? Yep. You guys, next week we get to prove the existence of God to atheists. All right. Thank you. <laughs>